This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to present some data from a study I did to evaluate the ecology of hominin scavenging, but I'll start by talking a bit more broadly about how archaeologists can use evidence from butchered animal bones to understand prehistoric meat eating in terms of potentially both hunting and scavenging. So as someone who studies prehistory, I start with a totally blank canvas when I attempt to reconstruct the diets of ancient humans. I try to paint a picture of the past that I know will always be incomplete. We will never have all the pixels, but I'm dedicated to finding the filters on the lenses through which we can peer back in time and try to reconstruct something rich in detail, like this National Geographic illustration of what I can only describe as a hominin meat picnic. (laughs) Um, the, one of the fun things about studying hominin meat eating is there are so many different lines of evidence that we can use to do so. We can use chimpanzee and human forager diets, and the talks earlier today have addressed some of this. We can look at hominin fossils themselves. We can look at the size and shape of teeth. Um, the talk before mine by Margaret addressed this a bit. We can look at jaws and skulls, and we can look at even body size and shape. We can also look at the chemistry, which is what the talk before mine um, really focused on, of those actual hominin fossils. We can look at animal fossils, particularly those with direct evidence for butchery, Um, and that's what I'll focus on a little bit after this. To do that, we often use a method called actualism, where we either do experiments or make observations in the present. We look at bones on the present for traces left of behavior from those experiments or observations. We then look at fossils in the past, see if we can find similar traces, and then we can infer that similar behaviors occurred in the past. We can also look at the archaeological record at tools made by hominins that were used for meat eating. And we can even use newer methods like looking at ancient molecules. And so less than a year and a half ago, a team of archaeologists announced that they had found ancient animal proteins, basically the residue of blood, skin, and flesh from animals on the edges of 17 stone tools from an excavation in Jordan dating back to 250,000 years ago. It kind of blows my mind a bit that now we have direct evidence for even what kinds of animals hominins were butchering a quarter of a million years ago. In this case, we're talking about camels, wild cattle, rhino, horses, and duck. So I use a method called taphonomy. This is the lens that I most often look through to examine the diets of early humans. Taphonomy is the study of what happens to an organism after its death until its discovery is a fossil. Here's a great illustration by a paper by Nina Jablonski and colleagues of a possible taphonomic scenario resulting in the accumulation of giant panda bones in a cave in China. I'm particularly interested in what happens right at and after death. So that's that middle row, really between boxes number three and four. And when it comes to thinking about hominin meat eating, the main way to investigate this is through the study of animal fossils with butchery marks, including cut marks made from skinning, disarticulating, and defleshing animals, as well as percussion marks left by bashing bones open to get at the fat and calorie-rich marrow. I also study tooth marks and other chewing damage left by carnivores. The lens I use is literally a hand lens, like a simple magnifying glass that I can use to identify these marks on fossil bones. 
So I'm going to take you on a taphonomic timeline of what we know about the earliest evidence for hominin carnivory. And the bulk of the evidence for the earliest carnivory in human evolutionary history really comes from three sites in Ethiopia. The oldest is a 3.3 million year old site called Dakika, where a team um, led by people including Jessica Thompson and uh, Shannon McFerrin discovered just a handful of bones, including those pictured on the left with possible butchery marks on them. Two other sites from Ethiopia called Gona and Bori. The bones on the right are from um, pictures of bones with butchery marks from Bori. Those date to 2.6 and 2.5 million years ago, respectively. They also preserve a handful of butchery marked fossils. While much ink has been spilled about whether some of these marks are actually butchery marks and not marks made by crocodiles, mammalian carnivores, or other butchery mark mimics like sedimentary abrasion, the importance of these sites is that they signal the beginning of a dietary shift in hominin evolution to occasionally, but apparently only occasionally, butchering and eating animals. There was a shift at two million years ago when we have the first evidence of both persistent carnivory and early access to small animals, and I'll explain what that means. And the image up here is of some butchered animal fossils from the site called Kanjera South in southwestern Kenya. This is some research that I've been involved in, led by Rick Potts and Tom Plummer, as well as um, Jennifer Parkinson and Joe Ferraro. At Kanjera, there's clear evidence from hundreds of butchery marked fossil bones, animal bones, that hominins acquired and processed numerous, relatively complete small animal carcasses for meat and marrow. They got to these animals first before other predators and butchered the meatier parts of them. So that's the early access part. The Kanjera hominins also had at least occasional access to meat and marrow from larger sized animals. An important difference between this and the earlier sites where we do see evidence of hominin butchery is that there's evidence for hominin butchery on bones at Kanjera from three stratigraphic intervals that span hundreds to thousands of years. So hominins were coming back to this place in southwestern Kenya over and over again over a long period of time to butcher animals. This is what persistent carnivory is. And this gives us a sense that this dietary behavior is becoming more important, or at least it's becoming more commonplace. Just a little bit later in time, uh, work led by David Braun in a place called Kubifora in northern Kenya, um, there's evidence for hominin butchery marks on uh, turtles, crocodiles, and fish. So at this time, hominins are already broadening their uh, butchery behavior to include both aquatic as well as terrestrial animals. There's another shift that happened about one and a half million years ago um, from several different bone assemblages from the sites of Olduvai Gorge, some of which date back to about 1.8 million years ago, and Kubifora, some of which date back to 1.5 million years ago, um, led by a, a variety of different teams. There's evidence from the skeletal parts that were transported and butchered. At these sites, hominins had early access to large animal carcasses. Basically, they were now able to get to these carcasses first um, and butcher the meatier parts of large animals. Um, the photo up here is of butchery marks on a one-and-a-half-million-year-old on fossil antelope leg bone from Kubifora in northern Kenya, and this is part of an assemblage that I studied and excavated as part of my dissertation. So you're probably picturing hominins striding out onto the African savanna, armed with their stone-tipped spears, getting ready to hunt these animals, like this bronze sculpture reconstruction of a Homo erectus from the Hall of Human Origins at the Smithsonian, carrying a goat-sized gazelle on her back. 
Well, the earliest solid evidence for hunting technology doesn't come into the record until half a million years ago with these spear points from a site called Katupan in South Africa that have what are called diagnostic impact fractures on their tips, indicating that they were definitely used as the ends of weapons. It's possible that hominins were hunting with unmodified rocks or sharpened sticks made into spears, maybe like the Fongoli chimpanzees, or other basically archaeologically invisible tools, but we haven't figured out a way to detect this yet in the prehistoric record. And this is particularly likely in, in the case of the small animals at Kanjera. So many of the small animals themselves were juveniles, and very young defenseless antelopes are often stashed in thick grass clumps for several weeks by their mothers. It doesn't take very sophisticated technology to basically walk up to those little antelopes and bop them on the head, and then you have dinner. So what made early human carnivory or early hominin carnivory unique, particularly compared to the possible diet of our earliest ancestors as well as the diets of chimpanzees? There are four things. The first is that it involved big animals, and so animals much larger than themselves. As you heard from the talks earlier today, chimpanzees don't hunt animals that are larger than themselves. Um, this is a, a really useful reconstruction of an extinct elephant being butchered by a group of Homo erectus based on a one million year old archaeological site I'm involved in studying from a Smithsonian research site in southern Kenya called Alorgosile. The second thing is that it involved tool use. And um, rare occasions, including the Fungoli chimps aside, um, we don't think that our earliest ancestors necessarily used tools when they hunted. Hominins also don't have the sharp teeth of mammalian carnivores to be able to get through the skin of large animals, let alone slice meat off of their bones and bash them open to get marrow. It also likely in involves something called deferred consumption, which is basically not eating something right away as soon as you find it. This is a weird thing that humans do. We don't go to the grocery store, sit down in the middle of the aisles, open the packages, and start eating, I guess, unless we're really hungry. Um, but in the earliest record of um, hominin meat eating, we have evidence that hominins transported carcass parts to central places for some kind of communal consumption, potentially food sharing. So if early humans were eating meat from large animals for about two million years before we have evidence, good solid evidence for hunting technology, how were they getting access to them? One suggestion is that they were scavenging the leftovers from large carnivore kills. And I should point out that this is something that is very rarely seen um, in chimpanzee behavior. Chimps don't seem to look at dead things and think of them as food, things that are already dead. Um, there, so what does scavenging look like behaviorally and ecologically? There have been two main kinds of scavenging that have been proposed for early hominins. The first is called confrontational or aggressive or power scavenging. This is when hominins actively chase carnivores off of kills, presumably getting access to a lot of meat and marrow in the process. There was probably a pretty high risk of injury of pred or predation of the hominins themselves when they did this, and there are a few hominins with bite marks on them from carnivores to indicate that this did happen at least occasionally. The second is passive scavenging, and this is waiting until carnivores are completely done eating a kill, they've moved off, the scene is safe, hominins could go in and eat the leftovers. One of the main criticisms of the passive scavenging idea is that there probably wouldn't be much worth going after when carnivores were done eating their fill. But is this the case? I decided to try to answer this question by simulating passive scavenging in a modern African ecosystem similar to those in which our earliest meat-eating ancestors lived. And I'm very happy to leave simulating confrontational scavenging to somebody else. <laughs> so is passive scavenging worth it? 
Um, the research I'll be talking about here was part of my dissertation, and it was published a few years ago in the Journal of Human Evolution. Um, in 2002 to 2003, I spent seven months in a game reserve in central Kenya called Alpegeta Conservancy, um, which you can see here on a zoomed-in map of Kenya, um, and I simulated passive scavenging. I specifically chose this conservancy, Alpegeta, because the, field, the, the carnivore community is dominated by lions, and most models of hominin scavenging are based on interactions with large felids, including lions, leopards, and extinct saber-tooths. There have been a few other scavenging studies that were done before mine, but these were done in the Serengeti and Ngorongoro ecosystems of Tanzania, as well as the Masai Mara ecosystem of Kenya. That's actually all one big ecosystem that happens to be separated by an international border. Um, but these ecosystems have unusually high numbers of predators and particularly high competition among predator species. So I was interested in going to a felid-dominated ecosystem to simulate passive scavenging. So um, Olpegeta is an African savanna ecosystem. It was about 100 square kilometers when I was there. It was called Sweetwater's Game Reserve when I was there. Um, now it's been expanded to almost four times that size. Um, and here you see some images of what it looked like there. Um, it has mixed grassland and woodland vegetation. All the photos on this slide are photos I took in the reserve. The vegetation map on the top left shows open grassy areas that are in black. They generally run east-west on kind of high plateaus. Um, the photos with the giraffe with the zebras in the background are a good example of what those open grassy areas look like. There's a permanent river called the Owasso Nero that runs north-south through the reserve. You can see that on the western side with that green strip. Um, that green is basically riverine vegetation, trees particularly dominated by yellow fever acacia or acacia xanthophloia. There's a picture of that on the top right. The dominant bush in the ecosystem is called euclea. This is noted in the bright blue areas. You can see that on the top middle. Um, whistling thorn acacia or acacia drapanolobium are also very prevalent. Those are noted in light blue on the um, vegetation map. And the yellow and pink areas on that map are areas of mixed bushland, woodland, and grassland in kind of different proportions. The predator community during the time of my study was dominated by lions, as I mentioned already, and the herbivore community was dominated by zebras, followed by warthog, impala, buffalo, and baboon. So my study methods were pretty simple. After finding out about a carnivore kill from a variety of sources, I would wait until the lions were completely satiated, like this one in this photo with a distended belly full of warthog. This was a really happy, sleepy lion. Um, and I would document what was left on their kills. I had two advantages over my earlier ancestors. I had a four-wheel drive vehicle, and I had an armed guard with me at all times, lessening the likelihood of me becoming one of my own samples. In the time that I was at Alpegeta, I collected 24 kill samples from several different species of carnivores, which you can see in the left column of this table. But I'm going to focus particularly on the lion kills today, as that's my largest sample and the most relevant for thinking about models of hominin scavenging. I separated the prey into two size divisions related to how we classify the size of animals when we're doing archaeological analyses, but here I'm just generally calling them large or small. Larger animals are over 250 pounds, small animals less than 250 pounds. 
I documented the location and estimated the amount of meat left over after the lions had their fill. And here are some examples of what these leftovers looked like. The top right is a picture of a zebra rib cage with quite a bit of meat left on it, and the bottom right is a picture of a part of a limb of a young Grant's gazelle with hardly any scraps left. And I should say specifically that I followed previous researchers in defining bulk flesh as masses of muscle more at least 10% of their original size. Flesh scraps were usually pieces of flesh less than the size of the palm of your hand, but over two to three centimeters and weighing more than about a third of a pound. So how much meat can a scavenger eat from a large animal, something like a zebra or a large antelope? I'm going to walk you through the axes of this graph before I show you the data. So the x-axis is a skeletal element or bone arranged in groups from left to right with the total sample size of each bone listed in parentheses. The important part is the left Two bones are bones of the hind limb, then bones of the forelimb, then bones of the torso, and all the way on the right are bones of the head and neck. The y-axis is the proportion of those bones in all samples with three different levels of flesh availability. And I basically colored them like a traffic light. Green for bulk flesh, yellow for flesh scraps, and red for no flesh. So what did I find? You see a lot of green and yellow on there. In large kills, over 50% of bones were abandoned with large muscle masses still on them in green, and 95% of the bones had either bulk flesh or flesh scraps, which you see in yellow. That's from large prey. Small prey is a different story. Only a single bone on smaller lion kills retained bulk flesh on it. About half the bones still had some flesh scraps, and the other half were totally defleshed. You can see that in red. And one take-home from the study is that if you're an early human scavenging from a lion kill, the size of the prey really matters. So how does this translate into actually how much meat a scavenger could eat? We can use weights of adult wildebeest and zebra, which are pictured here. The hind limb of wildebeest yields about 19 pounds of meat, a zebra about 50 pounds. A defleshed hind limb of a wildebeest would be about two pounds, defleshed zebra about five pounds. That's only a single hind limb. A defleshed wildebeest carcass could yield 12 pounds of meat. A defleshed zebra carcass could yield about 34 pounds of meat. So if we estimate four calories per gram of meat, this is about 2,200 calories from a wildebeest and almost 6,100 calories from a um, zebra. And these are defleshed. Um, so, um, Translating this into things we can understand here, that's about a little more than five and a half in and out burgers worth of meat from a wildebeest, a little more than 15 and a half in burgers worth of meat from a zebra. Um, um, using an estimate of somewhere between 2,100 and 2,300 calories per day required for Homo erectus, a defleshed wildebeest is pretty much your daily caloric requirement. This is even without breaking the bones to get at the marrow inside. So the main take-home message is that I think scavenging from even relatively defleshed carcasses would have been a profitable and worthwhile activity for hominins. I just want to acknowledge government of Kenya, the funding, my PhD advisor, and the people and the predators and the prey of Olpegeta. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.